Well, it's been a great summer. Our family has had a very busy summer. And uh, like many of you, as you can see from these pictures, we had some family milestone events. We graduated a kid. Uh, my daughter and I did a daddy-daughter dance. We spent some time in places that were tranquil and beautiful. We spent a lot of time on the water. And uh, as always, I did a lot of fishing this summer, particularly for those that you are not fishing aficionados. Say that three times fast. Uh, I, I love fluking. And I particularly enjoy uh, when somebody comes out with me and catches their first large fluke, as you can see from some of the shots here. It was just, it was a really good summer. But you know, in a lot of ways, it was a really hard summer. It was a, a difficult summer for our church family. These two families pictured here uh, used the occasion of the passing of both of their fathers uh, to gather the family together and to capture, uh, you know, just the extended family in a picture. And they kind of represent uh, a number of people in our church fellowship this summer who lost loved ones. And I, I want you to remember them uh, as they continue the, the process of grieving as a church family. But isn't this like life, right? It's joy mingled with sorrow. It's both things happening at the same time. And so we come alongside each other, right, before the Lord as, as Christian community. But for us as a church, really today does kind of mark that transition from summer into fall. We have a, a new series this morning. Uh, we've turned the page. As much as uh, September can be very warm, uh, we're really moving into our fall series. So our fall series beginning today is called Stay Out. And specifically this morning, we're going to look, be looking at Stay Out of my food. In each one of these topics, we're going to be looking at something that we tend to kind of push the Lord out of. Or maybe, maybe to say it this way, we don't invite our relationship with the Lord or we don't see it as informing on some of these areas. Now, I want to make a pastoral point right away. This morning's message is not targeted at those of you that may struggle in secret with some sort of disordered eating. It is not targeted at those of you that might really wrestle despite your efforts to control your weight or struggle to stay in shape. This message is for every one of us. In our relationship with food, as it relates to our relationship with the Lord, and the Lord had to preach it to me first. And I'll tell you, there may be just uh, uh, as equal, if not more important lessons for folks to learn in this room or those watching online who are in amazing shape in terms of our relationship with food when it comes to our flesh, pride, control, and other things. And so I want all of us to just be listening to what, what does God have to say to me today in this regard? Uh, two companion resources I used in preparing uh, this summer and into the fall. Uh, the first is not a new book, but it's called Living the Resurrection by Eugene Peterson. Peterson is an insightful, uh, he's gone home to be with the Lord now, but he's an insightful writer uh, along this idea of what he calls resurrection meals. We'll look at a couple of those. Uh, the other is more of a cultural reference, maybe a little less helpful, but uh, kind of pointed us to where our culture stands with food, and that is Jim Gaffigan's Food, A Love Story. And, in fact, if you know Jim Gaffigan, he's built his whole comedy career, a uh, large part of it, on, on his relationship or our collective relationship with food. In fact, I think Gaffigan does capture something about our culture's relationship to food. If you think about the explosion of fast food in the last 60-ish years, if you think about the plethora of, of restaurant choices, even here in sort of a moderate-sized town and, and area that we have, I was reflecting on this just in terms of over a month or so, how many times my wife and I will communicate via text or phone, and we'll say something like this, what do you feel like eating tonight? 
right? There are a lot of parts of the world where they don't have the opportunity to ask that question. But we have a tremendous amount of both abundance and choice when it comes to food. And so it's fair to ask some of these questions as we look at the culture. All of this has kind of cheapened our relationship with food. Food that has moved from being something that is about our sustenance and even, as we'll look at this morning, uh, uh, that it can be a sensory experience in a helpful way. And our cultural, culture is often a sensual experience. And it can become idolatrous. And, and I'll share some of that in my, my own life this morning. And so we're going to invite God back into the places, maybe in our relationship with food, where we've said, you know what, stay out. So I'm going to look at food in, in, in three areas. Number one, food is nutrition. Food is pleasure. And food as a means to relationship, and all through a biblical framework. And so why don't you join me in prayer, and then we'll, we'll dive in. God, you are so good. Lord, you are so good, as we've sung this morning, that we, your gathered people, can learn more about you, even in just the day-to-day. -day. Lord, we confess that at times we push you out of the day-to-day. -day. We get it when we're here in this room, when we're gathered together, you are on the forefront of our minds. But sometimes in the eating of our meals or other mundane things, God, we've pushed you to the sidelines. So Lord, would you help us to be open-minded and open-hearted this morning as we hear from you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's begin with food as nutrition. Now, this, I, I will admit right off the bat, you'll probably pick up on, these points are a little fuzzy. There's, in other words, there's a lot of overlap between the three of them. But as we think about food as nutrition, I wanna start sort of with this idea that the Bible has a very high view of food. In fact, God throughout his word uses our temporal understanding of appetite, taste, or affection for food to draw a parallel and uses a spiritual metaphor to help us to both understand and desire a relationship with him. And so early in the Psalms, we read, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. Two of our senses, right? Taste and sight. Things that we can understand here in the earthly to help us get a grasp on the spiritual. Or what about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? Where he says, blessed are you when you hunger and thirst after righteousness, for you will be filled. And Jesus taps into this idea that we understand what thirst is. We understand what hunger is. And he applies that spiritually, that, that I would hunger and desire to be righteous and to know the righteousness of God. And in that be filled. What about Psalm 63? You satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. The Bible has a high view of food in that it compares a satisfying, we're not talking about a gluttonous satisfaction, we're talking about a contentedness, a resting after a, a, an amazing meal, a, a, a gratitude that our relationship with God is akin to that on a spiritual level. So the Bible has a high view of food. What about Jesus' teaching? And Jesus' teaching, this is kind of the heart of what Peterson gets at in his book. Jesus uses physical meals to teach, but he also takes time to provide physical meals even just to nourish. Jesus' uh, ministry largely, if you look through the whole New Testament, often involved real meals with real people and real food. And Peterson talks about these resurrection meals as an opportunity to teach but is also meeting a physical need and Jesus being fully human. So I'm gonna look at two of them very briefly. The first is on the road to Emmaus. Now, if you remember the story, it's at the end of Luke's gospel. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples who at the time don't recognize him. 
And Jesus spends their walk together, the time that they're together, and he unpacks basically the entire Old Testament narrative speaking about himself, about how the Messiah had to be killed, buried, and rise again. And then picking it up in verse 28, Luke says, they came near the village where they were going, and he, Jesus, gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, stay with us because it's almost evening, and the day is almost over, so he went in to stay with them. It was as he was reclined at the table with them that he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? A couple of notable things here. One, Jesus feeds these two disciples spiritually first, right? He teaches them along the way about himself. He doesn't reveal it until later. And then he feeds them physically. And Jesus understands that they've just walked a great distance and he begins with a meal. But that's another really fascinating part of this story that it's easy to miss. That in ancient cultures, and I dare say in our culture as well, Jesus is the host of the meal. Remember, this isn't his house. It's not even his village. But they come into the village and into this home and the text says as he reclines at the table, Jesus steps into the role as host and provides a physical meal to nourish them after their long journey. We're gonna see that theme resonate throughout this whole message this morning, that Jesus is the host who has given us even physical food for our nourishment, our enjoyment, and to join us in relationship. To push the illustration further, When Jesus comes and resides in the home of my life, we are to make him the host, allow him to be the host, even in regards to our relationship with food. Let's look at the second New Testament example, second resurrection meal. Uh, Jesus has risen from the dead and the disciples are out fishing and Jesus tells them from from the beach, remember, cast your nets on the other side. And they have this great catch of fish. And then in Luke, uh, uh, John chapter 21, verse nine, it says this. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there and fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, as a matter of fact, the text tells us. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus took the bread, gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. And Jesus is, in this particular instance, he feeds them physically first. And then he feeds them spiritually. We didn't look at it in the text, but particularly for Peter, Jesus has a spiritual feeding, a lesson for him. But Jesus is sensitive to the fact that these men have been up all night fishing. They've been working, laboring. They didn't sleep. And so he first invites them to a meal. Remember, Jesus is fully human. He understands the human need to have nourishment and sustenance. And so they break the bread, they break the fish, and they enjoy this meal together. By the way, there's a a corollary to this and, and the other acts of Jesus throughout the New Testament in how we do missions, right? Oftentimes, we meet a physical, temporal need so that we can then speak to the need of the heart and the spiritual needs of each and every person. Food and nutrition. In my own life, food and nutrition has a, a, an emotional connotation that uh, unearthed some things in me as I was uh, preparing this message. 
Uh, many of you may not know, I was born uh, very premature, very small, and I had an intestinal birth defect that was significant enough that I went into surgery right away. And as I began to grow and develop as a baby and a toddler and then a, a little guy, um, the, the physicians were unable to find a food that would stay in me, that, I would, that my intestines would be able to absorb the nutrients from. And, and it was after some time that they settled on, they found that plain potatoes, plain, completely plain potatoes, was something that I could eat and that, that I would gain nutrients from, and I finally started to put on weight. My mom and I were looking for some pictures, and there just really aren't any. This is the 1970s, and my parents weren't great um, uh, avid photo takers, but I was so thin as a little toddler that, in the words of Mike Myers, one of his 90s films, I looked like an orange on a toothpick. And there's some truth to that. But as I grew, the doctors began to introduce new foods and new foods and new foods. And I would voraciously and excitedly discover, I remember the first time I had a cheeseburger, the first time I had ice cream. And food became, and particularly as I got to a certain stage in my life, like late elementary, early middle school, literally idolatrous for me. Part of that was because my own folks and the people in my life that were trying to care for me were very careful and, and I'd say controlling about what they let me eat, and I resented it. And yet, as I grew, and praise God today, I can eat pretty much anything, uh, I began to put on weight. And food and nutrition, as I said, has a deeply impactful uh, connotation to it for me. Food equals life, physical life. But it's meant to point us beyond this life to see the gospel. I want to share with you a quote from Eugene Peterson. He says, always deeply embedded in the common meal is the experience of sacrifice. One life given so that another may live. It may be the life of a carrot or a cucumber or a fish or a duck or a lamb or a heifer, but it is a life. Eating a meal involves us in a complex, sacrificial world of giving and receiving. Life feeds life. We are not self-sufficient physically or spiritually. We live by life given to us. I was uh, performing a wedding years ago and the groom was an avid hunter. And I used that illustration for the couple. It was profound to a lot of people that, that when an animal is, is killed and it bleeds its blood into the ground and then the hunter and his family consume that flesh that gives them life, it is a profound picture of the gospel that Jesus, too, gives his life, lays down his life. Jesus even uses that metaphor when he talks about communion, that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, applying this spiritually. Because, in fact, what Jesus did, as, as an animal gives us life or a plant gives us physical life, Jesus shatters the space-time continuum because Jesus' physical death on the cross in human history, where he bled out on Calvary's hill, brings us life in the spiritual realm and for eternity. It's, it's unique and completely different. The blood of bulls and, and goats didn't take away sin, the New Testament tells us. It merely covered it. But Jesus' death transcends the physical. And if you don't know that this morning, Christ's death on the cross, which is real in human history, was for the forgiveness of your sins, that you might have right relationship with God as you trust in him. Eternal life, you need not fear death. Truly, the physical and the spiritual are linked together. And that's part of why our relationship with food is so important. Two application questions, one in the earthly, one in the heavenly. These questions I've been asking myself. 
Is my relationship with food leading to greater or worsening health? Simple question. It's not, it's not nuanced or in the weeds. It's a bigger question. Is my general relationship with food leading to greater health or worsening health? And then the eternal. Does my relationship with food point me to Jesus? Or does it point me to myself? I want you to wrestle with that. I'm going to share some practical examples of, of how some of this is applied in my life in, in our next point. So I want to move to food as pleasure. Food as pleasure. Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, he says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Now, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, this young church of people that have come out of all kinds of pagan backgrounds uh, about what it means to walk with God and the Christian liberty that they have. He says, everything's uh, permissible, but not everything is a benefit to me. He continues, everything is permissible for me. Key phrase here, but I will not be mastered by anything. And then he says this, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Talking about the utility of food. The food is nutrition part of this. He continues, God will do away with them both. However, note how Paul pivots from one physical appetite into another. And we'll, we'll look at why in a moment. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? Skipping down to verse 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. Paul says, do not be mastered by anything. And ultimately, he says, glorify God with your bodies. He moves from using the, uh, the illustration of the physical appetite of food to talking about sex and, and sexuality. And namely that, that each physical appetite has a particular purpose and has God-ordained boundaries and purpose behind it. Telos would be the, the Greek word. You know, last year we did a whole series on sex called Good Sex. And in that series, the point that we pounded over and over again in each message is that the world has a false view of self, of who we are as people. That the world says that my physical plant, my tangible, my flesh and blood has nothing to do with myself, my internal self, sense of self. And in fact, it, it presents a very low view of our physical bodies, right? Because in that case, it doesn't matter what I do to this body, how I treat it, what do I do, what I do to it. What matters is, is sort of my psychological self. That's not a biblical view. A biblical view says that we are an integrated whole. I think the term we used last year, embodied souls. And the biblical view says that how I treat my body is equal to how I treat, to abuse my body is to abuse me. That there is a stewardship required of how I use my body, particularly in physical appetites. And we would probably, as, as Bible-believing Christians, we'd probably line up and agree for the most part on, on what the Bible says about sexual boundaries. Right? One man and one woman in a relationship for life before God in a covenant. We would agree on that if you are a Bible-believing evangelical, if I could use that word, Christian. But I dare say we wouldn't find a lot of agreement when it came to boundaries with food. And some of that is because the Bible doesn't make it as clear either. And so we're looking at principles. But Paul uses this greater idea of purpose to actually help teach a little bit more specifically about sex and sexuality, which we'll talk about at a later time. Well, make no mistake, with both sex and food, God has given us these things as good gifts of a good God to be received with thanksgiving. 
The colors, tastes, and textures of food are one of the great gifts of this life. God did not create the world uh, gray, right? It's filled with vibrant color, and the same is true of food. Food, when you think of, of the creativity of cooking, one of the only areas of life that perfectly combines art and science, chemistry and creativity, it is a gift to be received with joy, to be enjoyed. My wife and I, this past week, uh, we, I think it was Thursday night, we had an amazing meal. We had um, uh, locally harvested tuna that we did as sushi. We had locally harvested bluefish that we made a smoked bluefish pate out of. And we had locally harvested a deep fried porgy with tartar sauce. Now, it, some of you who don't like seafood or fish are going, that sounds disgusting. But I can tell you as someone who enjoys those things, right, the texture, the, the heat of the wasabi, the smoothness of the tartar sauce, whatever your thing is, God has given us food. He's given us all these taste buds that we would enjoy it, but as a good gift to be received in perspective. In perspective. What are the boundaries when it comes to food? Well, number one, food is not to become an idol. And each one of us should be looking and, and, and taking as a part of our sanctification our relationship with food. Many people in our culture have become addicted to the sensual relationship they have with the pleasure of food. Or they've become addicted to food as the go-to comfort that they have in their life. Or in some households, the abundance of food consumed on a monthly basis actually uh, uh, pre pre uh, prevents them from being fully generous to kingdom work or other things. Maybe pride, as I said earlier, regarding how much you control food in, in your high fitness commitments or whatever it might be. Every one of us needs to be indicted and wrestle with this, uh, this area of our relationship with food. In fact, at our Celebrate Recovery program here at GBC, we talk about hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And one of the areas that we talk about hurts, habits, and hang-ups is our relationship to food. And CR is a place that is safe to come if this is a struggle of yours. We have people in our Celebrate Recovery program today who are a part of that ministry because this is an area they're working on that they want to see redeemed and sanctified by the Lord Jesus. Praise God. And so if that's your issue or struggle, don't be ashamed to come and in this community of Celebrate Recovery to work through that. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. The bottom line is we need to invite Jesus. I need to invite Jesus to rule my relationship with food. And maybe in a, a new, maybe it's something I've said, stay out. So I'm gonna give you three practical ways to do that. One, make personal life changes. Make personal life changes. Proverbs 23, 2 says, put a knife to your throat if you have a big appetite. Now, yeah, <laughs> hyperbole. Please, hyperbole. Jesus said something similar about lust, right? If your eyes cause you to sin, gouge it out. Dave Reed, uh, who taught the Bible here for many years, used to say, don't gouge your eye out, otherwise we'll have a bunch of one-eyed lusters walking around. <laughs> Same principle applied. But the, the, what is the principle then? Make drastic changes. Take it seriously. So I'll share an example from my own life, something I recognize just in my own preparation. Uh, a lot of times I will come home from work, and particularly if it's a stressful day, and I kind of carry the stress right here, and I'll come home from work, and I'll make a beeline for the kitchen and just start eating, like two hours before dinner, hour and a half before dinner, and I'll eat, and I've recognized through this study that I'm actually eating my stress. 
Now, I justify it because the things that I'm eating aren't unhealthy or junk food per se, things like cheese and crackers and things like that. But I've recognized that that's my, me running to food for comfort instead of the Lord first. And so one of the changes, and making a change is what the Bible calls repentance, that I'm making is I may still come home on some days and have a small snack a couple hours before dinner, but it's going to be that. And it's, I'm going to process with the Lord and with my wife first. Small changes. Another thing that, uh, that I changed this year and it had nothing to do with this message, it was a, it was a New Year decision, is I, I reinstituted rhythms of fasting in my life. Now, quite frankly, we're preaching a message on food and I'm not even unpacking the scriptures on fasting. I encourage you to do that on your own. But here are two things that fasting does and, and certainly does for me. Number one, back to 1 Corinthians 6, it is me, my will telling my flesh, you will not master me. You will not rule me. That my flesh doesn't just lead me along. And secondly, when I feel those hunger pangs, and I absolutely do, my heart is directed to the Lord. And I'm reminded to pray, and I'm reminded to find my satisfaction, as we looked at in the Psalms, in Him. Make personal changes. Number two, make personnel life changes. This is just me being creative. Psalm 23 also, or Proverbs 23, a little later says, don't associate with those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will become poor and grogginess will clothe them in rags. It essentially says laziness is a byproduct of drunkenness and gluttony. Simply said, if you are in relationships that lead you into unhealthy a relationship with food, you may need to change the nature of that relationship. Maybe it's somebody that's in your life that you can't move away from, but maybe instead of meeting at a bar and grill, you grab an apple and say, hey, let's meet at the park. Make personnel life changes. Thirdly, recapture mealtime. Recapture mealtime. If you're single, get together every week with a bunch of friends or with roommates and, and have a communal meal. If you're in the empty nest stage and your kids have moved on, get together with a couple of other couples or singles and, and share a meal. If you have a family, for goodness sakes, eat together. Figure it out at least a couple times a, a week. It makes me laugh that, uh, I don't know if you've noticed over the last few years, but the culture has been running ads about having dinner together, like it's a new idea, right? But it's what Scripture has been saying for a millennium. But don't just eat together, but use, as Jesus did, that physical meal as an opportunity to feed spiritually. Come prepared to share a, a single Scripture, to just meditate on. There's the biblical idea, by the way, is like a cow chewing its cud when it talk, we talk about meditating, that it just chews over and over and over again. Do that together in your communal meal. Come prepared with a devotional thought. Ask leading questions about your walks with Jesus as you share a meal together. Real practical way to do this in, in your meal planning. Once a month, plan a meal where you mimic what our missionaries are eating on the field or maybe the people they're ministering to. You can see them uh, in the commons and reach out, email them, say, hey, what is a, a, a common meal in the context in which you're, you're ministering? And then do that once a month as a family and don't have ice cream after, right? <laughs> Recapture mealtime. It's really important. Peterson says this. Well, first the question. Do I receive food as a daily good gift of God? Or do I see it as an ultimate good in, in and of itself? It's great to receive food as, as a pleasure given from God. 
but let's not make it become an idol. So Peterson says this, every time we pick up a knife and fork, every time we say, pass the salt, please, every time we take a second helping of cauliflower, uh, some of you have never done that in your life, okay? <laughs> let's be honest. We are in a setting that provides an opportunity for spiritual formation. We ought to take these meals seriously. Why? Because food, third point, is a means to relationship. Food is a means to relationship. I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this is going to move us right to this symbolic ceremonial meal of Christ's body and blood, the Eucharistic meal. Paul, in fact, is writing to the Corinthians. We're in the same book uh, about this issue that's developed in this immature church. And he says this, when you come together, then it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat or drink and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus, in uh, Paul rather, on speaking to the Corinthians about the way they were observing the Lord's Supper, noted that their observation of the Eucharistic meal had degenerated into this chaos. Now, it's likely that it was, it was observed on the back end of a communal meal that they would re then recognize the body and the blood. But it seems from the context that people were actually taking the communion bread and the communion wine and eating and drinking all of it to the point where some were getting drunk. And so Paul said, you know what? Have supper at home if you're gonna blow this opportunity to remember what Jesus did for you. And then come back together. Remember Christ's body. In fact, he goes on, if you read the rest of this passage, and says, a man or woman ought to examine themselves before they take the body and blood of the Lord. Why? Because food is for relationship. And that points us, as we've said, the temporal and the eternal, right, are, are, are intermingled. It points us to what Jesus has done. The act of eating together has this amazing way of, of pushing to the sidelines our, our hierarchies, our socioeconomic differences, our reputations, all of our sort of pride issues as we break bread together. And God knew this when he gave us food. And Jesus knew this when he took the Passover meal and he made it about himself. Food is a means to relationship. So Jesus, what does he do with food? He puts himself before it and above it. He makes it about him. Uh, there's an English priest and monk long ago, Dom Gregory Dix, who said that Jesus does the same thing in the New Testament meals, particularly the resurrection meals, but even in the feedings of the 5,000 and 4,000. He does these same four actions. Jesus takes, he gives thanks, he breaks, and then he gives back. And Gregory Dix says, what he's ultimately doing is that's what he does with you as you come to him, right? Jesus, we bring to him who we are. We come as we are. I remember the Vineyard Movement back in the 90s uh, began to use this, this um, tagline, come as you are, right? That's what Jesus does. We, we, he takes who we are. However you come through those doors, he takes 
as imperfect as we are. And then he gives thanks. Jesus, by the ministrations of the Holy Spirit, he brings us to the Father without judgment because as believers, our judgment has been paid on the cross. And he brings us before the Father, as Gregory Dix says, in all the operations of the Trinity. But then he breaks. Whatever it is that we've brought to him, he breaks it. Despite my best intentions, despite my pride, despite my self-righteousness, he breaks me ultimately to prepare me to be able to be renewed by him. And then he gives back. But what, what Jesus gives back to you is not what you brought to him, right? It's by the transformative power of the gospel, he gives you back a renewed self, a self who is now ready to be on mission for him. And so it is important how we relate to food, our relationship with food. I wonder this morning, how does God want to take, give thanks, break, and give you back in relation to how you relate to the food in your life? Last Peterson quote, and then we're going to transition to communion. He says, for the Christian, every meal derives from and extends the Eucharistic meal into our daily eating and drinking table when we invoke here it is again, Jesus as host. When we pray in Jesus' name, now he's not teaching heresy. He's not saying every meal you have is communion or you no longer need to, to do the communion meal. No, he's saying that there's an imprint of that sacrifice we talked about in the beginning of what Jesus has done for you that like at the Emmaus Road dinner, that when we pray in Jesus' name, he comes as the host of our meal. And so there ought to be holiness about how we eat and how we drink as Christians as unto the Lord as we remember that he is the one, the only one who can satisfy in, in the sense of, uh, of that psalm that says, like a rich food, my soul, in a way that I try to satisfy with the next meal and the next meal and the next meal. It's fascinating to think that God has given us food as nutrition, food as pleasure, and food as the means to relationships. But when we remove him from it, when we make this good thing an ultimate thing, it actually destroys our bodies. It becomes completely unsatisfying, even regrettable, a regrettable experience, and it isolates us from relationship with each other. I'm going to invite the ushers to come ask you one more question and then we're going to move to taking communion. Our third question is this, does my relationship with food deepen and grow my relationships with others and the Lord? Does my relationship with food, is it drawing me into greater community? And as you get your, your bread and your uh, cup this morning, you can go ahead and distribute. I want to encourage you to two things. Number one, scripturally, recognize Christ's body and his blood for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Take time to thank him. But I also want to invite you to use it as an opportunity to say, God, in this way, I've told you to stay out of my relationship with food. And I want to invite you back to be the host of my life. I'll give you some time and then we'll give thanks for the bread and the cup. Give thanks for the bread. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had to contemplate the scriptures that we've wrestled with this morning, Lord. And Jesus, we thank you for perhaps what's a, 
kind of a new revelation about how you interacted, not just with food, but particularly with bread and ultimately this bread that we hold in our hands, Lord, that symbolizes your body given for us. Jesus, we're so grateful. We take it in remembrance of what you've asked us to do. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the bread. Give thanks for the cup. Lord God, thank you for sending us your son for having a plan to redeem us from our sin, from ourselves, to save us from the power of the evil one and the power of death. Thank you for the death of your son, the Lord Jesus, that ripped apart the space-time continuum, Lord, and provided our redemption as Jesus, you came here to earth for one purpose, to redeem us to yourself. We thank you for this cup that reminds us of all that and more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.